It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 120, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Polly Shika and Prentice Grassy raise five acres of vegetables and five acres of cover crops, plus broiler chickens, egg layers, and beef cattle at Village Side Farm in Freedom, Maine. Polly and Prentice have been involved in farming for 20 years and have been farming their land since 2001. Making a living for both of them on $200,000 in sales, they've worked hard to build a family business that is an asset to their community. We talk about the challenges of farming at the five-acre scale and dig into the nuts and bolts of how they manage their vegetables in a three-years-on, three-years-off rotation with perennial cover crops. Polly and Prentice dish out plenty of details about how they manage the livestock and vegetable production together and about the equipment and tools they use to manage their five acres of produce. Polly and Prentice also dig into the numbers that drive their farm and the hard work they've put in to balancing their life and their business. They share their strategies and philosophy for making the most of their interactions with customers, children, employees, and each other, and how they have worked to develop the human skills that support their farm and their family. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality compost and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. And by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSamerica.com And by Store It Cold, makers of Coolbot. You can build an affordable walk-in cooler powered by a Coolbot and a window air conditioning unit. Save up to 83% on upfront costs and up to 42% on monthly electrical bills compared to conventional cooling systems. Storeitcold.com. Polly Shika and Prentice Grassy, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Fun to be here with you. Really glad that you could join me on a, well, it's a rainy day here in Wisconsin in, in April. How's the weather out there in Freedom, Maine? Gray, but not too rainy at the moment. Not a bad morning to be inside. Not at all. I'd like to start off by having you guys tell me about Village Side Farm and, you know, kind of lay the groundwork for us. How did you guys get started? You know, where are you located? How much, how many acres are you farming? What kind of crops and, and how are you selling it? Kind of all that, the, the, the basic farm bio. Well, Prentice and I met while we both were doing um, farm apprenticeships in 1995, I guess. And, um, and we then worked on a bunch of different farms together and separately and by say year 2000, we were actively looking for our own piece of land. Um, we found this piece of land right in Freedom Village. Uh, it's adjacent, it's about a 40 acre field and an 80 acre woodlot. And it's adjacent to um, a really sweet little, um, you know, rural Maine village. Uh, the village has a general store with a gas pump or two, has a grange hall, a post office, um, a town office, a fire department, that kind of thing. Um, but it really has a sweet village feel. So we, um, we immediately loved the piece of land and, um, we made it happen and, uh, built a little house and started building buildings over the next few years. Uh, all the while, um, we were both working off the farm. I was working in, uh, community organizing and Prentice was managing a cabinet shop, uh, doing woodworking. We started having children, and um, by 2007, we were ready to sort of officially start our farm. Um, and so that's kind of the brief timeline of our early years. 
Um, and uh, since then, we've just grown fairly slowly from an acre the first year to a couple acres the second year. And now we top out at around five or so acres of um, certified organic vegetables. And we have another um, five or six uh, in cover crops and rotation. So that's the scope of, of our um, field work. Uh, we, we milk a family cow as sort of a homesteading activity, and we have a small herd of beef cattle. Uh, we graze a few hundred, 600 or so meat birds on pasture every year. Uh, and then we have what is a growing and you know fairly sizable seedling operation. So we have a um, propagation house and a few high tunnels um, for overflow. And that's really the a growing part of our business. So that's it, that's it in a nutshell, I would say. Um, anything else? You know, we both apprenticed on farms. And so we've had an apprenticeship since 2008. And we host, at this point, four full-season, full-time apprentices. They're housed on the farm. And we also have, this year, one, or in the last two years, one full-time paid employee. And then we have a smattering of volunteers who come during the week. So that's that's the labor scope of the operation at this point. And how and where are you guys selling your produce and your meat and eggs? We have, um, we were both trained on CSA farms. And so I think the CSA model resonated with both of us. We started 2007 in that first year, just selling to a local summer camp and a local caterer that we knew previously. Um, and then we started making inroads at the Belfast Co-op a little bit, which is a pretty healthy happening um, natural food store and co-op in Belfast, which is about 15 miles from the farm. 2008, we added a CSA, which started at about 25 or 30 households in the Freedom area. That grew to 75 households pretty quickly over over a couple of years. So 2000 by 2009, maybe we had 75 households, and that's pretty much where it stayed up until this year. We've made some changes this year. Beyond that, we don't do any farmers markets. That was um, that was really a purposeful choice. Um, right from the beginning with young kids, particularly, we decided that we wanted to try to focus our efforts more on the farm, do most of our marketing off the farm and uh, and and had a, a mix of wholesale and CSA. And the wholesale part of the business grew over time while the CSA has, had sort of stayed at the same height. So now we sell most of our vegetables within 20 miles of the farm. We have a couple caterers that are, have been good customers, um, a couple restaurants. Um, the Belfast Co-op is our largest account, and then we sell to two two uh, distributors, Crown of Maine and the Unity Food Hub, both that operate, you know, within within 30 minutes of here, and they both come by the farm twice a week and pick up produce. Always interesting to me when people say that they're they're working with food hubs, and and you're working with two of them. That's kind of unusual, and to be able to get a volume of produce where that makes sense on a five acre scale. Can you talk a little bit about how that works? Yeah, we focused, we've had a relationship with Crown of Maine um, for a number of years, probably six or seven years. And um, we've focused with Crown of Maine on certain crops. So we've identified crops that we think we can grow well and can grow, you know, on our scale, you know, relatively efficiently. Those being um, like herbs, bunched herbs, microgreens, and bunched greens, chard and kale, um, and some lettuce heads. Those are sort of our primary products for Crown of Maine. So we do some bagged carrots and bagged beets and bunched carrots and bunched beets for Crown of Maine. But I would say those are sort of the, the ones that we focused on in quantity for 
both Crown of Maine and Unity Food Hub. When you say bunch greens and, and bunch herbs, those those both seem like things that there would be a lot of competition for. I mean, those are those are crops that are fairly easy to scale up. How have you guys maintained a market edge there? Or are you sharing that marketplace with Crown of Maine with a whole bunch of other farms as well? I think we, we're sharing it somewhat. Um, you know, I would say that uh, we we do emphasize a lot our customer relations. And while we're not going to farmers markets, we really see all our all the wholesale buyers as, you know, important customers and important relationships for us. So I think from the beginning, we've really focused on making sure those relationships are sound, communication's really good. Um, and so I think in some ways we've been just slightly ahead of the curve. We identified those crops early on as crops that we thought we could, like you say, scale up somewhat and uh, and do well and do well at, um, you know, do relatively efficiently for, for the setup that we have. And so I think we were just felt slightly ahead of the curve and we've just tried to really manage that that place. And there are many more farms in this area now and uh, many more farms that I think are identifying wholesale as a as a good way to scale up rather than sort of the traditional CSA or farmer's market kind of entry markets. Um, so I think there's more competition, but we've been able to sort of carve that niche and and hold our own. And, and it's perhaps it's the demand maybe has gone up with the increase in the number of farms. And so we've been able to sort of manage that same spot um, right along. I would say um, the only other thing that that uh, came to mind is just that we, we started weighing uh, not every bunch of greens, but we basically developed like our village side farm standards really early on with, say, a bunch of cilantro and a bunch of basil and a bunch of parsley, a uh, bunch of kale. We we weighed them and we chopped the ends and we chose a rubber band color. I mean, we really standardized them many, many years ago. So what people are getting from us, they know every time is pretty much going to be exactly what it looked like last time. So I would say we're sort of ahead of the curve on that um, part of things that we've really been delivering the same product, you know, cilantro every every week of the summer, um, just from succession plantings, parsley every week of the summer, um, basil until, you know, it gets taken out by the mildew. Um, so, you know, that that I would say we we had going for us early on. One of the biggest complaints that I hear from buyers about about local produce is that it's not cold. Have you guys do you guys take special steps to get your product cold since so much of it is going through the food hubs and and therefore has a a longer distribution cycle than something say that you're taking to farmers market or packing in a CSA box? Well, we um we we cold water um bath all of our herbs and bunched greens. Uh, the only thing we don't do is basil. Um, and we basically cold water bath it. We pick it early in the morning. We cold water bath it. We spin it in our salad green spinner, basically in mesh bags and to get all the water out of it, we bag it and we put it right in the cooler. So that's really all we're doing. Yeah. I would say we pay attention to that process. It's also, again, our, our pack shed is somewhat scale appropriate. It's not, um, we use a cool bot and an eight by 16 cooler. So we're not blast chilling the stuff, but I would say that we we're very conscientious of any feedback we get from the buyers, you know, very open to that. It's, it's rare that we have anything called back due to quality or the fact that it doesn't stay up. And in fact, we get a lot of, you know, we get a lot of reports, particularly from our CSA members, I guess, is that it, you know, and, and maybe the local, you know, food co-ops that are putting it out on their shelves that the stuff, you know, lasts for a long time. 
but it's certainly an area that we feel like we can improve. You know, our, pa- our pack shed does feel like an area that might be the next place where we would try to do some research and figure out what better ways we could handle the proposed, you know, post-harvest handling basically to maintain the quality. So Polly mentioned at the beginning of the show that you guys have about five acres of vegetables and then about four or five other acres in cover crops. Can you tell me a little bit about the crop rotation that you're following? Uh, we have developed a three-year rotation where we, and that's been in place for probably six years. It sort of has sort of worked itself out. And we have any given plot we put into vegetables for three years. And then we've been taking that out of production for three years. The farm is roughly split in half. We've got some lower land, which actually is more um, more well-drained, uh, easier to work early in the season. Land up above is a little heavier. It tends to uh, push through midsummer a little bit better, but it can be hard to get on in the early season. So, um, And they're about split in half. So we have about two and a half to three acres down below and about two and a half to three acres up above. And then again, that much again in, in cover crop. So in the on years, we're conscious of where crops go. We move, say, crop families from down below to up above, particularly uh, ones that attract uh, the toughest pests. Uh, cucurbits we move from one part of the farm to the other every year, potatoes likewise. But within those that acreage that's in production, we're not worried too much about the rotation that's going on within that. Obviously, with you know we're growing so many crops and not much acreage of some of them, so we don't worry much about that. But rather just take, you know, take that vegetable land out of production for three years. And generally speaking, when a when a plot of vegetables comes out of production for that three-year cycle. We've been seeding it to winter rye in the fall and underseeding it with a pasture mix, red clover and uh, timothy, um, maybe some other some other legumes we'd, we'd throw in there. Um, and then we've been harvesting the, the rye as a nurse crop and harvesting that for straw in the, the following year using um, and then using some area farmers to do that with their equipment. Uh, square baled straw, and then we let the pasture come in, and then we've been grazing that with our poultry. So really putting about two years of consistent grazing with the poultry. Sometimes the cattle go out on that land too. It's a little harder to get them to some of the plots, but um, and then in the, at the end of that year three, we usually plow it down midsummer and uh, and try to get a winter killed cover like oats on that for the fall. I'm a big fan of the of the Nordell style rotation, the year into vegetables and the year out of vegetables. One of the things I really like about when you're out of vegetables for multiple years is it does create more opportunities to do things like harvest the straw and and get the livestock in there on pasture, which I think has some additional advantages for the farm. You know, especially a crop like straw where it's I don't know what your experience has been, but my experience was always that it was hard to get good weed free straw. And if you did get weed-free straw, it was usually full of oats, you know, and being able to do that with the rye on your own, you can put up a lot of bales of rye on a couple of acres. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and it felt like you know, the point I often make, too, is that because straw crops, you know, small grains are coming, you know, are being cultivated, that it's, it's a prime opportunity. And we had this experience early on of buying some straw and actually introducing some annual weeds that were really weeds that we, that we didn't have and that we didn't want. And, and after that exposure felt really like too big a risk. That was some organic straw um, and had some ragweed seeds in it. And it just created problems. And of course, if you buy conventional straw and they've done a good job uh, managing weeds with herbicides, then it can come in relatively clean. But um, so we've been 
I've been we've been really promoting the idea that um, that straw can be made on you know on small farms in this area, and, and the rye straw seems perfect. You know, we harvest it. We don't harvest the grain, so we're harvesting it when it's just heading out. And uh, you know, we're in an area that has um, historically a lot of larger dairy farms, and we have good relationships with some neighbor dairy you know neighboring dairy farmers, and they can come in. I mean, we have one farmer who can comes in and you know with a big disc mower and mows four acres of straw in about twenty five minutes. You know, at about 15 miles, at about 15 miles an hour, and the beauty of it is, the straw can just sit there, and we you know it windrows it. It can it windrows it, and the straw could sit there for two weeks. You know, we're not looking for feed quality or anything like that, so it can sit there and wait until it's dried out in the windrow, and then hire another neighbor. It's a little bit harder to find somebody who's can square bale these days, but we have another neighbor who's got a square baler um, who who comes over and you know bales it, and ultimately we get straw a lot cheaper, and it's and it's completely clean of weeds. At least to this point, we haven't had any any trouble with any weeds in there. And if at least if we get weeds, they're our own weeds. <laughs> so right, <laughs> yeah, it's always better to have homegrown weeds, right? <laughs> right. So at five acres, you're in kind of a funny position there. You know, size wise, you know, you're 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 too big to do stuff on a hand scale or to or to just be managing it with the BCS, and and you're too small to really be taking advantage of a lot of the mechanization that's available out there. What can you tell me a little bit more about what you're doing as a for actual production system, bed widths and tractor numbers and implements? We do have our areas that we you know that we focus on, Polly and I. Of course, we know what the other one's doing all the time, but I will uh, I'll probably speak to that a little more easily. And I agree with you. And this might be something that we circle back to in this interview is that it is kind of a funny in between size, and I think that's something that we're you know, that we're struggling with, that we're sort of pushing and pulling is what is the, you know, there's a combination of reading a lot of, and this is a tangent, I realize, uh, to your question, but reading about, let's say, no-till systems, you know, are getting a lot of press anyway. You Like you said, using a BCS, uh, using maybe plastic, you know, mulch or uh, landscape fabric tarps, you know, scaling back and trying to, um, so there's sort of a, maybe a pull that direction. We're, we're at this kind of scale where we could sort of retract into that a little bit. We haven't made a lot of investments in the machinery um, that we couldn't sort of pull back a little bit. Or there's we're also at that scale where we can all of a sudden we could see ourselves knowing what equipment it would take to bump up to 15 acres, let's say, as a next jump or, you know, 10 acres, then to 15. So I agree with you that it's uh, it can feel a little like a rock and a hard place sometimes at this scale, or at least maybe it's feeling that way where, you know. 45 years old now. And it feels to me like a midlife, you know, assessment somehow. I like that a midlife assessment. That's, that's where you don't buy the sports car, right? (laughs) You just buy a bigger tractor. That's right. (laughs) Quickly to get back to your, your original question. So we have one thing we did early also was standardized. We have an, we had an open enough space to work with. There's one thing we liked about this, this land was it was very, uh, relatively open and we could we could lay things out in a way that seemed efficient so from the beginning we've laid all our gardens out at 200 feet long and bed size is uh 60 inch tire centers so um, we get about 42 43 beds to the acre each bed is about uh well works out to a thousand square feet which is kind of a nice number in terms of doing some analysis or or for planning purposes as well we have essentially two tractors that fit that bed that bed size. We've got a 45 horsepower International, older, early 70s model International, um, that does basically um, all the sort of bed prepping 
Um, and we can talk more about specific, you know, tools and equipment for that if you want. But um, and then we have an Alice Chalmers G, which is also set up at those tire centers. Um, and we have some basket weeders and some other cultivating equipment on the Alice. And then um, about three years ago, we felt like the International was struggling with um, our eight foot disc harrow. And at that point, we had a two bottom plow. Um, so we went to a uh, 65 horsepower John Deere, which has bigger tires, doesn't fit our bed system, but does the sort of heavy, heavy lifting in the field, the early spring work and likewise in the fall. So I'm always curious, why 200 foot beds? I mean, you, you know, when when you look out there, there's, you know, people always say standardized beds and then you find hundreds of different lengths of standardized beds. I'm just curious why 200 feet? I mean, maybe at the time when we were starting off, you know, with an acre of vegetables and you know, not necessarily sure of where we were headed. It, it seemed efficient enough. You know, I think now maybe I could see, I, I've looked at some of our beds that are, you know, our fields that have, we have usually a 30 foot headland in between. So we've got some fields that are 200 feet, then a 30 foot headland, then another 200 feet. And at this point, I can sometimes look down and I can imagine a 400 foot row, you know, so it looks kind of interesting. But because we're growing so many different crops, 200 foot bed, every everything kind of needs to fall into that. So if we're growing, uh, let's say, you know, our cilantro successions, you know, a 200 foot bed of cilantro is just about right for what we can sell and market. Or so it does feel like a quantity that's enough to have something of any given crop enough to have, you know, a good market for it, a wholesale market where we can produce enough on that. Does that make sense? Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. Yeah. So, so broccoli, for instance, we'll grow a bed of broccoli or we'll grow two beds of broccoli or three beds, but no bed and a half of broccoli. So it's a way for us to kind of, it's a, it seems like a reasonable increment for our markets. You know, the, what, what, what you get off of on almost any crop, what you get off of a bed. Right. It's a quantum that works for you guys. Yeah. Is your seeding and transplanting done by hand or are, are you tractor mounting equipment to get those jobs done? It's all done by hand. Seeding's done with a, an older planet junior that works great. So basically the beds are set up for three rows, 14 inches apart. Some crops we do on two rows the exception that we do on a single row. So all the seeding is done with, we mark rows with the tractor and then I push the seeder up and down the beds. And likewise, all the transplants are going out, are going out by hand. So what are you doing for weed control? You mentioned that you've got the Alice Chalmers G. Can you tell me a little bit about how you've got that set up? What kind of tools you're using on that and how your weed control process works? Because I, I know from experience on a five acre farm, weeds are again because you guys are kind of caught in the middle of it's it's a small enough scale that the weeding's not a huge job if you get it done on the tractor but it's a large enough scale that if you screw that process up getting it done by hand is almost impossible yeah i think i mean i would say from our experience we're we're pretty clean we you know we dedicate some time resources when we need to to get weeds but we do not have i would you know, we try to keep weeds in check, and I think we've done that right along pretty well. So I'd say we've kept certain weeds uh, out of the system, at least, you know, knock on wood to date. Gallon soga, you know, would be the, the big one. That don't, don't, even, don't even say that. I, I might edit you, that yeah, out of the podcast. That. Yeah. Scratch, scratch that, please. So we use the basket weeders are probably the primary tool that we use on the G. I mean, if, if we had nothing else on the G, that would be, they're very effective. I like using them quite a bit. We have some sweeps uh, set up for the pathways that work well. And then we have a, a two-row 
set of heavier cultivators that we use for brassicas mostly. Something that does a better job of throwing dirt than, say, the basket weeders does. That's right. Once the plants get bigger, anything that can, you know, handle that, at, right, when the brassicas are, you know, 12 to 16 inches tall on two rows, we can we can go through with that. But the baskets are the are the big one. Um, and we go through o- over almost every single bed, I would say, with those basket weeders at least at least once. Except uh, all our salad greens, those are mm. in five rows to a bed, seven rows, seven rows now to a bed. And um, we don't ever cultivate or nor do we weed, flame weed those beds. So that kind of gives you a feel for our weed seed bank because um, we're growing, you know, we're getting a 21 day salad mix with, you know, some weeds, but not a lot of weeds. We're basically mowing those beds. I think if anything, that kind of at least gives me an idea. Those those salad greens get seeded, they get covered, and we don't open them until the week that we harvest them. That's impressive, and that that really does speak to a, a consistent effort to get those weeds under control. Exactly. You know, when you say that and you talk about having been in this three-year rotation for six years and you've got stuff in a pasture crop ahead of doing the salad mix, I can't imagine that you're you're seeding that salad right after coming out of pasture and getting a good, clean field. In terms of weeds or in yeah, terms of... Yeah, in terms of, in terms of weeds. No, it's really been, you know, I mean, those, those three years in ro- out of rotation, and that's one reason why we've gone to that perennial pasture mix is because, for one, I like the idea of saving both the time and energy to, let's say, manage uh, a whole series of cover crops during that time to build fertility. Um, you know, there could be some advantages to that, certainly, if we were, you know, there's certain you know, cover crops that might do well at smothering weeds or, and we do some of that. Occasionally we'll, we'll come out of vegetables and dedicate a year or two uh, trying to manage some particular issue in that field, whether it's lower than normal organic matter or a particular weed that's, you know, we want to try to focus on. Um, but I would say for the most part, you know, they, they come out of those, you know, that pasture rotation pretty ready to go. And the fertility is usually pretty, you know, we've usually got pretty good fertility there. Well, and we just don't have the annual weeds, you know, which is what would cause the biggest problem in a three-week salad mix. That's actually an interesting point. I mean, the perennial weeds almost are less of a threat in that situation. If you've got a leftover quackgrass rhizome, it's not going to jump up and make the same fuss as a, as a pigweed would. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I would say, right, crab, I mean, quackgrass, witchgrass is... We really don't consider that a bad weed. Crabgrass, quite the opposite. That's probably the weed that's becoming more and more of a bane for us. So you guys have 40 acres of non-forested land on your farm, and and you've got 10 of that in crops and cover crops right now. Is there room for expansion? And, And I'm curious, that's a lot of land to manage if it's not making a profit. A lot of that is some um, wet pasture land. And then we have, you know, five acres or so as our homestead, barn and greenhouses, hoop houses, house, uh, play yard, that kind of thing. Um, And then we have combined efforts with um, some friends who've actually planted a heirloom apple orchard on about a, what is it? Three acres. Three or four acre piece um, that, that is adjacent to the village. So, you know, by the time you take out 12 acres minus four acres, that's 16, five acres, 21. Um, there's not a, a lot of- acre hay field yes. that's managed by an area dairy farm still. Yeah, there's not a lot of more tillable land, honestly. We've, 
we keep eyeing a one piece of pasture that we might take over sometime. But um, if we want to keep the, the rotation what it is, there's really not any other large plots. And you're not carrying as much overhead in terms of land management as what it sounds like when you say we've got 40 acres of crop. Bush hogging around the perimeters, but but really, you know, grazing probably right 15 of the of that balance. You guys are also doing you mentioned you've got the chickens coming in on that cover crop ground. Um, Occasionally, you've got the beef cows coming in. Tell me a little bit more about your livestock side of your operation. Well, our. um I forgot to mention in the beginning, we, we pasture 150 or so laying hens, um, and they're in a mobile coop, uh, so they get moved around the farm as well. In the early spring, the cows are pretty much on a established sort of perennial pasture-only piece of land that we, we rotate them through uh, strips of that. But in the later season, they also might spend some time on a, you know, on a piece of vegetable land that's in cover crops. The birds get moved around the farm pretty much. Uh, you know, one batch of broilers might be on an acre of um, cover crops for their lifespan of, you know, eight weeks, nine weeks. Um, and then the next batch would might go on another piece. Um, they've also been moved through the orchard, which is just in its first few years. Um, so that's really nice to see both the hens and the meat birds, um, you know, moving through the orchard trees. Um, we've put our, our laying hens also through, we have a small tree nursery. We grow just a thousand or a couple thousand uh, trees for a local uh, nursery business called Fedco, Fedco Trees. Um, and we've put our laying hens in there and they'll, in the late fall, and they'll clean up a lot of weeds. Um, so we, we sort of move them around. We sort of manage them, you know, more like a homestead crop than, um, than a at least the laying hens, we manage them more like a homestead crop than a real for-profit, hardcore laying flock. The laying hens, um, we've, we really have looked at that enterprise quite a lot over the years. And Prentice has done some fancy figuring um, in, you know, sort of a two-year enterprise budget just to account for, you know, raising pullets and not getting eggs until they're 18 weeks old and then, um, you know, phasing them out after two molts. And we've really decided um, that having those eggs in our walk-in cooler for local customers, having the eggs for ourselves, and having the eggs at the Belfast Co-op, the local health food store, with our label on it, um, you know, almost year-round, it's worth something to us. That enterprise, we don't we don't charge enough to really. Um, it's not we're not getting profit so much profit from the eggs as we are from the seedlings or from the vegetables. Um, just because of the price of the grain is so high um, and the labor is so high. But um, but we really, we've just kept with that enterprise, partly because we figured in how much nitrogen they drop on the ground and sort of gave, given that a dollar value in our enterprise budget. But we're not losing money on them. Uh, but we do, we do watch that enterprise budget over time. Eggs are such a um, sought-after item. And, um, you know, again, we, we really like having our label in terms of, just our logo and our farm name out there associated with a, a product that people really, really want. It's kind of feeding something to the local community that is really sought after. And we feel like it's just a, a nice product for us. Well, and I think, you know, broccoli looks a lot like broccoli, you know, when, when you, you know, whereas 
whereas, and I, and I speak from experience as somebody who, who had pastured eggs and, and doesn't anymore. I recently had some real farm eggs and I buy my eggs at the local food co-op and I'm usually buying organic and access to the outdoors and blah, blah, blah. But man, you know, when you get a real pastured egg, it's a completely different creature than, than what you, what you can buy in the store normally. No, I agree. And, and that's, there's an irony there because if we were to say, geez, there's a lot of demand for eggs and let's scale up and what can we do to scale up and make this more efficient? And, you know, inevitably that quality I think would suffer, you know, it's, and I'm sure there, there are operations out there that are, you know, that maybe they're pasturing 2000 hens and still have a really high quality egg that, um, but, but it's, yeah, there's, there's something about, uh, the, something about the scale, I think, that contributes to what people recognize as a real farm-raised egg. I know that one of the challenges that comes from having livestock on the farm is simply comes down to management and the fact that there's only a limited number of hours in the day and, and frankly, only a limited amount of attention that's available at any given time. How do you balance out having the cows and the broilers and the egg layers all on the farm? It's a really good question. Um... We pretty much allocate a half an hour in the evening and an hour or half an hour in the morning to animal chores. The whole crew does them together. And that's how we've figured out um, just basically putting it on each end of the day and then realizing that over time, realizing that if we can make those egg, those animal chores uh, more efficient, that gives us more family time, right? And so, for example, we used to raise eight or so pigs. And um, we looked at the numbers for that and we realized we got to, we got to get rid of something. So we dropped the pigs and it was, it was just the best thing. One of the best decisions we made <laughs> because it freed up that much more time around breakfast time and around dinner time for the family. And so we basically balance it by, um, you know, it, we really like the manure we really like having our own fertility grown right here on the farm. We really like working with the animals. I think it's just a, it's a still so far a quality of life um, for our boys and for us and for our apprentices that we haven't been willing to question too, um, you know, too deeply. You mentioned that you're doing the livestock chores in the morning. What kinds of steps are you taking regarding food safety and in, in making that transition from dealing with things that poop to things that people eat? Yeah, just the, you know, big things are washing boots and washing hands and, you know, not having any crossover buckets, not having any crossover brushes, um, things like that. That th Those are all things that the crew and we do to make sure that no poop is ending up in the pack shed. Um, nothing that gets dropped on the ground in the pack shed ever gets put back into use, a bag or a twist tie or anything. Uh, we don't set boxes on the ground, for example. Um, just all those sort of basic common sense, um, but important to sort of institutionalize those those habits early on with everyone on the crew. Working with the food hubs, the, the Crown of Maine and the Unity Food Hub, are you required to undergo a gap audit? We are not. Uh, so far, there, there are people in Maine who do help farms with gap compliance, but um, so far, those food hubs have not required that, nor have the food co-ops, restaurants, and caterers that we supply to. Okay, you've kind of honed in on, I think, the challenge of our operation right now, which is growth in areas where we'd like to see growth, seedling production, say, um, vegetables maybe somewhat, but 
but feeling the squeeze, you know, of, of, uh, and I think, I think you're right. seems like you're right onto it. And in some ways I'm encouraged by your, uh, I'm just encouraged that we're thinking about that, it, you know, that I'm not crazy, you know, you're not crazy. Like, <laughs> it, it is kind of, it is kind of a tight spot, you know, where we've, where we do manage these, you know, in the past, I think the livestock have been, um, you know, it's been a draw for the apprenticeship, I think, right along our diversity, you know, our diversity and the diversity of the experience. Um, as we've gotten, I think, better systems in place in the areas where we want to, where we see making our money, we've been able to pay apprentices a bit more, a bit more competitively anyway. And, um, and we've also been able to offer more in those areas. You know, I think, I think when it comes to, you know, farm profitability and farm planning and record keeping, you know, those are all things now that we uh, advertise to apprentices. And we think apprentices can gain quite a bit here from that. Early on, there was less of that and maybe more of an opportunity to see a, an operation starting off with lots of different enterprises, lots of different skills. All right. So with that, I think this is a good spot for us to take a, take a break. We're going to get a word from our sponsors. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes with Prentice Grassy and Polly Shika from Village Side Farm in Freedom, Maine. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the perennial support of Vermont Compost Company, makers of Fort V and Fort Light potting mixes. Vermont Compost potting soils are a really special product. I used Vermont Compost Fort V as a blocking mix and potting soil for over 12 years on my farm, and we grew great transplants with it. And I mean really great transplants year after year. At a time in the organic movement, we're seeing more and more companies jumping on the bandwagon. Vermont Compost is a reminder of the art and the craft of making potting soil. They mix an incredible diversity of ingredients into the compost that forms the basis of their potting soil, incorporating many kinds of manures along with plant materials and food waste to foster structure and aeration in the compost. I love that their Fort V mix even has chips of ocean blue granite in it and some kelp for a little bit of smell of the ocean. One thing I have always appreciated about Vermont Compost is their ability to put out a consistent product year after year. And in something that's subject to as many variables as market farming, it's nice to have something that you can count on. VermontCompost.com. Perennial support is also provided by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are real farming equipment for real farmers. And with PTO-driven attachments like rototillers, flail mowers, rotary plows, power harrows, log splitters, snow throwers, even a utility trailer and a new water transfer pump, you've got the tools you need to get jobs done across the farm and across the homestead. On my own farm, we went through a number of so-called solutions for mowing and tilling before we finally got smart, bought a BCS. Even though we owned a four-wheel tractor to manage our 20 acres of vegetables, the BCS tackled jobs that we simply couldn't do with the larger machine, from mowing steep slopes and around trees to working in our high tunnels. Plus, they're gear-driven for years of dependable service. Check out bcsamerica.com to see the full lineup of tractors and attachments, plus videos of BCS in action. And we're back with Polly Shika and Prentice Grassy from Villageside Farm in Freedom, Maine. Before we went on break, we were just talking just a little bit about profitability and, and record-keeping being something that you guys are now being able to advertise to your apprentices as, as one of the things that folks can, can learn about on your farm. So. Talk to me a little bit about profitability and record keeping at Village Side Farm. Starting with the record keeping, um, we we use QuickBooks um, for all our invoicing and certainly for uh, writing checks, uh, printing checks. So that is one of the major tools um, that you know we we can't uh, can't imagine living without QuickBooks. Otherwise, uh, we you know use basically the Excel tool um, to 
create enterprise budgets to create packing shed tracking sheets for the greenhouse where we're um, you know keeping track of what's planted and when um, we're developing all our planting calendars in the Excel tool. So um, so those are the two major uh, record keeping tools I would say that we we employ. And then around profitability, um, you know, because our operation is so diverse, record keeping really is the foundation of um, analyzing profitability. So with 10 years or so of QuickBooks records under our belt, we can really start to pull numbers from that and um, fill in some somewhat um, accurate uh, profitability, like enterprise budget uh, work. Prentice has been doing this winter more profitability work that um, he should really speak to um, in terms of getting uh, some more detail than our enterprise budgets in the past have have given us. We really didn't figure in um, overhead expenses into our enterprise budgets. We figured in labor, uh, materials, and sales. But um, Prentice has been putting all the, of our um, overhead expenses into uh, into a, an Excel spreadsheet to um, try to really get a good overhead number for the different enterprises. Yeah, essentially trying to look at individual crops. We've done, I think both of us have an inclination, you know, and have right along for um, keeping track of our time, recognizing that our time uh, is valuable. And um, and it's often one of the, you know, it's obviously one of the big, big ticket items in any enterprise budget. So um, I think we're naturally inclined that way. We've taken notes right along lots of notes and always really enjoy when I think, I mean, we've read a number of um, articles that you've written, I have, and uh, a book you were part of. Uh, always looking for some little benchmark tricks. So we like to apply certain benchmark tricks to profitability, whether it's gross sales per bed or some just some broad brushstroke stuff. But I think at this point, we're more ready to dial in more closely to our unit costs on individual crops. And like Polly said, start to start to bring in all those factors, not just the labor hours for that enterprise, but all the overhead expenses that are associated with each enterprise and try to try to take at least this winter our, you know, top 10 crops and look closely and see and, and essentially see that we're that we're pricing things correctly for profitability. I think it's one of the big challenges when you when you start to scale up individual crops, and especially when you're selling in a low margin market, like like going to a wholesale distributor, just like you can make a lot of money in a hurry that way, you can lose a lot of money in a hurry that way if you don't know that you're nailing it on the profit front. Absolutely. Prentice, you said you guys are, are trying to move beyond some of just having these benchmarks for income per bed and and things like that. But what are some of the benchmarks that you guys have been using to do that sort of rough and ready analysis uh, for production? Um, another one. And again, I think I might have drawn this from an article you wrote, honestly, but one that one that I've been applying recently and correct me if I've got this wrong, um, is uh, a 30 percent rule that if we look at um, the labor costs associated with just picking and packing a particular crop, that labor cost shouldn't exceed 30 percent of the gross, the gross sale of that crop. Did I get that right? Uh, you know, and, and I think it varies depending on whether you're going to, whether you're doing that at a, at a retail level or a wholesale level. I think those, but it is, it is kind of just a nice, it's a nice round number to use. It doesn't always hold up in practice, but it is a, it's something, it's a rule of thumb. And I think that's, that's really the way rules of thumb work, right? They don't always hold up. Exactly. And I think it's important to realize that and maybe have an intuition for when a rule of thumb 
might not apply as well. You know, for instance, some of our herb bunches, let's say the gross sales per bed, they're below what we would consider a normal threshold. But the, intuitively, let's say with cilantro, I know that there's no reme, there's no uh, it's quick turnaround, there's, there's no hand weeding, um, et cetera. So you can say, okay, I, you know, without fine tooth comb, at least we can say that well, we can give cilantro a little bit of a break when we look at, you know, gross sales per bed. But at some point, yeah, those, those like you said, they're they're just tools when you when you really lack the the analysis that you'd like. And you mentioned that you guys are are going through and plugging your own labor now into your enterprise budgets. How are you valuing your own labor? Well, I would say we tend to value our labor in the same way we value hired labor, with the exception of uh, of office work, you know, desk work, uh, management. That kind of thing. So we we bill ourselves differently there when it comes to the unit, you know, the unit cost analysis. But um, besides that, we're and in terms of a number, I think we're generally using I think we're using fifteen dollars an hour as our general labor number for you guys and for everybody else on the farm. For us and everybody else, and I would say that is the that is the cost of our hired. You know, once you account for um, taxes, workers' comp. Um, et cetera, for our one full-time paid person, that's about, you know, that's about where that cost comes out for us. Um, of course, apprentices receive a stipend, but um, they also get a different kind of training than than a paid employee is going to get. Which comes with its own set of costs for you guys. Absolutely. Are you guys making a living on the farm? Yeah, we, uh, we have taken an owner's draw of $60,000 for the last three years. Um, and that supports our that supports our family life. We're not saving a lot of money at this point, but that's that's what we're living on. And we're we're grossing um, around one hundred and fifty thousand dollars on the vegetables, and then another fifty thousand dollars on kind of everything else: the chickens, the um, Fedco trees, um, the eggs. Uh, oh, and seedlings are seedlings are thirty thousand dollars. So it's actually $20,000 of everything else and $30,000 of seedlings, $150,000 of vegetables. So that's the that's the scale we're, we're looking at. So that everything else is not a small portion of what you're doing. I mean, that's actually a, a pretty significant contributor. Yeah, that 10%, it's like they're all small puzzle pieces um, and they are sort of all relics, I would say, of, um, of sort of our uh, scaling up process. Um, and so, of course, that's kind of where we're looking to um, simplify our life. If we needed to drop something, it would be in that $20,000 five puzzle piece um, section of the, the farm. Now, we've also got those those three different sales enterprises that you're doing, the, the wholesale distributors or the food hubs, so the the wholesale, you know, restaurants and stores kind of stuff. And then and then your your CSA about how do those businesses break out? Well, the, the CSA actually, we, we have dropped this year. Um, so, or we've uh, let rest or whatever, however you want to say it. <laughs> <laughs> so the CSA uh, was, so now that's without the CSA. Um, that's, or that, that is actually without the CSA. Um, the CSA is, was around $30,000 of produce. The sales breakout, uh, basically around 30% go to local food co-op. About 15% go to the um, food hubs, and then the remaining um, 40% or so go to basically um, a handful, half dozen or 10 caterers, restaurants, 
and smaller natural food stores. And you said that you dropped the CSA. Why? We dropped the CSA um, because, well, the the details um, in the week were feeling really oppressive to us. Um, uh, creating the bag every week, um, making sure that they weren't getting celery two weeks in a row, um, making sure that there were 75 or 150 bok choy and not just less than what was needed to fill the whole um, order for that day. And, you know, customer emails, customer details, forgotten bags, uh, the price of uh, the organizing platform. We've used Small Farm Central for the last four or five years. Um, that price was going up. Um, so we we just took a hard look at that. It, it feels honestly really good and also like a very strange time in a broader, more global look to be dropping something um, that is, you know, really definitely linking us to local customers in our community. But I think we felt confident enough that our presence at the local health food store and other restaurants and caterers was just strong enough to take up that that slack and also to just make people realize that we weren't going anywhere and we really are still the same farm. We're just not doing that enterprise anymore. We're going to replace some of the income from uh, the CSA with a one night a week on farm farm stand basically to please and connect with all our local customers who've been CSA members all along. So we're looking at sort of a two to three hour block one night a week where we basically just set up a small farmer's market where our local customers will come. And where you guys are able to get a little bit of something for the stuff that's not being sold through your other outlets, you know, that kind of exactly. those, the, the, the ends of the rows, if you will. Exactly. Plus you can put your kids to work on that kind of stuff, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> It's interesting to me to be making those kinds of changes. I mean, dropping a CSA, even if it, you know, even if it's only $30,000 out of your, out of your business, I mean, that's not an, an insignificant decision. And it's certainly something that requires, I think, some explanation and, and outreach and some, you know, really working on your relationships with everybody around you. Can you talk a little bit about how you've gone through that process? Early on, when we started our farm, we were really um, we were really wanting to fit in, right? Um, I grew up in Maine. Prentice didn't grow up in Maine. We were, you know, came into this community, a rural community, and bought a really beautiful piece of farmland. Um, we really wanted to fit in. We really wanted to be of service to our local community. So we sent out a survey to around 90 people. We got around 70 responses. And one of the things that people said they really would like was a CSA. And so we, um, you know, we sort of followed that as well as both of us having been trained and worked on quite a few CSA farms. And I think now what I was trying to get at in that previous answer was that we just see that what we are providing, which is really great produce and eggs and meat to our local communities, what we are providing sort of stands on its own. And I think early on we use the CSA as a way certainly to help our cash flow in those early years, but also just to help us um, connect with people and to be the, you know, community farmers that at that point in our life, we really saw that we wanted to be. And I think at this point in our life with three young children and aging parents and um, interests, frankly, things that we want to do uh, other than farm, we're just seeing that 
we just are happy to grow really good vegetables and um, and that the CSA uh, model was um, one thing that we could let go of. We still want to grow really great vegetables. We still really want to connect with our customers. But the responsibility to those 75 households felt like um, it was weighing pretty heavy, heavily these days. And we were really feeling great relief in thinking about you know, one email to one wholesale buyer and one email response back that gave us, you know, a thousand or two thousand dollar order. So that's really what I think is some truth to the matter. I think it really speaks to what it takes to pull off a home business when you talk about that sense of relief that you feel having made that decision. Absolutely. You know, it's it's twenty four seven around here. I mean, you know, between children, and um, you know, as I said, aging parents and the farm and animals, plants. Um, you know, we're there's there's not really a break from um, the farm business. So we we try our best to create some you know really strong but flexible boundaries so that we can um, really feel like we can put our feet up. Um, we can connect with our children. We can go out to a movie, things like that. But honestly, it's it's a lot of hard work keeping those boundaries and um, being on the same page with those boundaries um, with each other, with our crew, with our children. It's it's a lot of hard work. A home business is a lot of hard work. And when you say it's it's a lot of hard work, tell me what you actually do with regards to that hard work both between the two of you and and with your kids and with your parents, as well as with your employees? I would say the nature of that hard work is um, constantly looking at um, what I, as an individual, am bringing to the table in any given moment. Um, So that's the hard work, is not acting out of habit, uh, trying to stay, not to sound cliche, but to just stay present with what um, with what really is happening um, in the moment, whether it be an animal that's loose or um, stress in our relationship, a customer that has made a complaint, whatever it is. So I think that's the hard work is navigating through um, me personally, Polly, where am I at and how can I address this situation that is right before me? And then, you know, one layer out from that is um, how can Polly and Prentice, the business owners, and the married couple um, address whatever next challenge is coming up, um, whether it's a child who's struggling or, you know, a family issue in the broader family or, a, um, you know, some change or challenge in the business. How do we function um, as a unit? How do we communicate with each other? When do we communicate with each other? Um, are we talking you know, late at night in bed or early in the morning while one of us is not quite awake? Um, no, we're trying not to do that. We're trying to bring our business to our business hours and leave those um, hours out of work for, you know, personal fulfillment, rest, relaxation, connection with our children. Um, so that's the hard work is looking at the various layers of the relationships that happen in any small business and just trying to um, sort of gently identify the challenges and then gently address those challenges with skills and practices and boundaries that are appropriate. The communication piece, um, it really seems like communication is just, we're, we're so originally uh, communicators as humans, and we want our 
interpersonal relationships, our interpersonal um, activities to go well. It feels really good to us when something goes well. It feels really bad. It can kind of ruin your day, you know, if an interaction doesn't go well. Um, if you leave a, an interaction with a customer or interaction with a apprentice or an interaction with a child in, in sort of a, you know, less than ideal way. So um, we really try to, um, you know, come to interpersonal uh, relationships with that belief and knowing that we really want this to go well. <laughs> How can um, we do ourselves in this interaction in a way that we and the other person or other people are going to walk away and feel really good and feel like they've been heard and that we have been heard. And it, it just builds, it builds everything you want in life. It builds your heart muscles. It builds your, um, frees up your brain to do other things. If you're not constantly processing negative or undesirable emotions, you're, you're a lot more free to, to do the work that you really want to do. If you're not constantly, you know, regurgitating and trying to figure out, um, some interaction that didn't go very well. So that, that's a piece of the communication skills. I would say we basically, uh, it's, it's really just, um, what is it? I mean, it's a way of being. Um, it's a, a way of, you know, choosing gratitude over criticism. Um, with our employees, say we we're, we tell them the first day, and actually, in, even in the interviews, and um, every time we talk to them on the phone, that we will correct you every day. Um, that's just the reality of working um, in a, an operation like ours, where we're really tuned into quality um, control. Um, we, so we, we just tell people, we front end a lot of information to our employees. And so we, we give them a long handbook that tells them all the nitty gritty about living here, living in their cabins, living in their shared communal space, hours of the day that they'll be working all those nuts and bolts, but also, um, just, you know, more tricky things like, please don't pick up our children. Um, you know, we sort of reserve the right to um, tickle our children and pick up our children for us and for family. And we don't really, it's not really comfortable to us, for example, when, um, you know, apprentices are being really physical with our children. So that's like a nitty gritty thing we just put in the, in the handbook. Um, and we say to people um, on their, in their first week of work, we go through the handbook uh, and basically read it with all of our employees and apprentices so that we're all on the same page and we don't have to say those difficult things down the line. We just say all those difficult things right at first. So that's that's one thing we do with employees, I would say, is we front end a lot. Um, we tell them it's never personal when we correct you, um, but we will we will be correcting you. We'll be making sure that these products are going out in just the way that we want them to go out. Prentice, I'd love to hear your voice on this, too. I think it'd be great if you could speak to the communication piece. I'm tempted to ask a smart ass question like, you know, Prentice, you're a guy. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Fair enough. I was trying to decide whether I wanted to go there or not. Well, fair enough. And I think for sure that there is some of that. Polly has, you know, I would say um, has a leading role in reminding me, particularly when it comes to boundaries uh, around the business and our family life, you know, reminding me of you know, where those healthy boundaries lie. And like she said, they're, you know, they, they need to be flexible and they are flexible, I, I would say, on our farm and within our family. But uh, she's been a great help to me in that way um, and brings that to our, you know, to our partnership business and, and personal. I think the communication piece 
uh, does come naturally to both uh, to both of us. You know, I think that's something that a skill that we share and something we really enjoy. I enjoy having a community oriented farm where we have we while we're living in a rural county in Maine, we have lots of traffic on the farm. We open the farm up in various ways to both uh, friends and community and and also customers. Um, so there's lots of coming and going. We live on a on a main road, so it's pretty easy to access the farm. You know, and I think we do put a, a an emphasis and process a lot communication that goes on, particularly, uh, you know, I do between myself and um, both buyers, customers, as well as uh, as well as the crew, keeping those relationships, I think, clean and just just like Polly described, just keeping them um, open and healthy is really is joyful and brings a lot of, I think, and bring a, um, brings a lot to the work environment when you can avoid that static of, you know, an unco- uncomfortable communication, you know, where someone doesn't feel heard or isn't listened to either way. Prentice, how have you and Polly gone about getting on the same page about all that stuff? Because I think anytime you're dealing with this, this kind of, I mean, you know, when we talk about limits and we talk about communication and we, and we talk about boundaries, you know, a lot of that stuff is it. It's easy to have it bottled up inside, and it's easy to have expectations that that aren't that are different between the two partners. You know, it's I mean, it's pretty clear clear to say, oh, you know, well, we're not going to ship cilantro that has yellow leaves on it. Okay, great, we can all agree on that. But when it comes to setting limits on the farm, and especially when people are playing, you know, two different roles in in how the farm works, you know, and, and boundaries around work hours and things like that. How have you guys gone about getting on the same page about that stuff? Well, it's certainly a work in progress. Nothing that gets knit right up and we're good to go. You know, it's 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 a constant work in progress. And I think we both, you know, in our own relationship, really try to listen to one another. Uh, we're getting better at that, I think, all the time. I think we're, we're um, it's something we constantly work on. And we have our, for sure, our days where it doesn't go suit too smoothly. Sometimes days stretch into weeks, et cetera. But I think for the most part, we're getting better at hearing each other, understanding what the pressures are that we're both feeling, whether it's a lack of personal time, a lack of a chance to sort of restore ourselves outside of the farm, or the flip side of that might be feeling hemmed in by these boundaries that we've set when, let's say, for instance, I feel like I really need to work tonight. I need to work. We need to come in and you know, we have our family time that's really set, but I really need to get back out on the tractor, for instance. And and so, um, you know, I recognize that that's an, an infringement in some ways on this uh, ideal that we have of having a certain amount of uh, family and personal time. But then I think uh, the flip side is that Polly recognizes that, that that needs to happen, you know, in a seasonal way. And, and I, I think what, you know, season to season or year to year, we try to see those trends and and understand is this ultimately, is this giving us a, a satisfying life? You know, it's not satisfying all the time, for sure. But um, on the on the margin, um, do the ends justify the means? And I think we're, we're, we're always looking at that. I feel like back in time before we had children, and, and honestly, before um, a couple of our children had sort of health crises, um, I felt a lot more sort of 50%, um, you know, the farm was 50% mine. And um, and I think as I've grown older and the children have grown older and um, I see their childhood, you know, really just frankly kind of going by very quickly and have had to deal with a couple of um, health crises and a few of them, um, I have 
I have realized that our division of labor um, doesn't actually have to be um, as strict as um, I originally set out to be, you know, 50% of village side farm. And I think now we have, you know, we definitely have taken on different roles um, where I tend to be, you know, really happy um, tending to the books and the computer and the children and the pack shed. And, um, you know, I get out on harvest mornings, but I'm not doing, I'm not involved in every last detail of um, every single day. Um, so I think that that, that's just the reality of how it's shaken out for us. Um, and I think, you know, while in some ways that is a disappointment, it also feels like it has fed the family life in a, in a way that I, I feel really happy about that the children, you know, can, can find me, <laughs> that one of us is on um, with, you know, three children underfoot all the time. That has felt really important to me, increasingly important over the years. So I've, I've taken more of a parenting and sort of anchor parent um, in the home role. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of sad that that's such a gendered um, reality that that is me, the woman doing that, but it's felt good and it's felt right. So um, I, I, you know, I can't really complain. Okay. So, so pivoting away from the, from all of that soft stuff, you know, the, 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 I I, want to say this right. Dang it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. yeah, see that I, like I, I would that. say I'm I'm grimacing, Chris, because I think that that's part of um, you know, I would say in a in a in a way like a, a um devaluement of these skills that yeah. I think are are human and not necessarily like soft or feminine or whatever. Like I really believe that every person is served um by you know by just coming to a conversation, coming to a relationship with, um, you know, a best case scenario and um, a best set of skills um, in hand uh, and ready to use them. So, yeah, that's, but that's, that's such a. Um, it, it is such a funny thing, right? I mean, we, we, right. I, I say, I want to pivot away from these, you know, but we do, we call them soft skills and, and somehow, and I do think it devalues them. And yet, when we look out at farms and I've done, a, I mean, I've worked with a lot of farms over the years. These are exactly the sort of things that actually they're oftentimes the weak link in an operation. You know, th- these are the, th- these are the things that cause farms to fail. They're also the things that can, can create when we talk about, about what a farm is and what farm failure is or what farm success is. I mean, God, you know, you read the literature and I don't care whether you're reading about, about farmers or whether you're reading about fortune 500 CEOs, Everybody talks about how on their deathbed, nobody sits there and goes, oh, I wish I'd put in more hours at the office, you know, exactly. and I right. think and I think that's exactly what we're wearing. Obviously, we're not just talking about hours. We're talking about the quality. But but and I, I don't know, it's it's hard because I, I don't think we have a good language around it, although I I love what you just said. And I, I might just rip this off from you, Polly is, is, uh, is human skills. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, fortune 500 companies have, um, you know, on staff organizational development specialists. Those are the people persons. Those are the people, people <laughs> like small farms don't have that scale and that ability. And so basically we need to be people, people, we need to be 
human centered. We need to see each other's needs and desires and um, wholeness. And I think that's why those, you know, Fortune 500 companies have realized that those quote unquote soft skills actually add a ton of value to their companies. It retains work. They retain workers if people are getting along in the workplace. I mean, productivity goes up. There's, you know, oodles written on Harvard Business Review about basically emotional intelligence. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about emotional intelligence, soft skills, human, um, you know, human skills, relational skills, whatever you want to say, um, call those skills. We believe that exactly as you said, they're so they can make or break an operation. They can make or break a marriage, right? And we don't. Our marriage comes first. Like our farm is second to our marriage. If the, you know, if our farm is um, struggling so much that our marriage is struggling, that's that's a um, that's a data point for us. So we've really tried to manage the farm stress um, in order to serve the marriage and the family. Um, and that that's one of the things we're committed to right from the very beginning. Um, we both have other interests and other skills. Um, if this farm thing doesn't work out, we're not going to, um, you know, stick by it um, come hell or high water. We're going to stick by each other. That's the human part of, um, you know, of this skill set and this uh, alignment really with um, where our values and priorities lay. Something I might add to to what Polly was saying is just that I I really see how these skills, communication skills, or you know more broadly relational skills, how they they can be learned. And you know, I think oftentimes we see these skills and think, oh, it's just a people person, or a, you know. And certainly some people it comes very naturally. I'm sure based on their you know whether it's based on how they were raised or their genetics or I you know I don't know what, but I think that um, what we've come to see in our mentoring of other of other farmers and other young, you know, young people is that, um, that those skills, you know, you can embark on learning those skills just as, just like you'd embark on learning how to, you know, pot up a tomato plant, um, that there are, um, and again, they're different, it's a different type of skill, but I think there's, there are ways to practice and there are ways to set your, your farm up so that it's, it lends itself to success in that arena. Chris, do you ever read Seth Godin's work? I love Seth Godin's work. Yeah, he 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 has a, a blog post about this called Skills versus Talents, which is speaks to exactly what Prentice just said. Um, there's sort of innate innate ability, um, and that can be that's called talent. But then there's if you can learn it, it's a skill. We'll we'll find that. And put a link to that in the show notes. Yeah, great. Cool. Let me just ask you guys, and I, I normally would stick this into the lightning round, but I'm just going to ask now, what if, if you had to recommend one book or resource about these human skills, what would it be? Boy, I don't know a book. Um, I don't know a book about this, really, um, other than, well, I can say some of my, uh, you know, teachers have been um, Pema Chodron, who's a Buddhist um, nun. Uh, Brene Brown, who's a sociologist, uh, she has a lot of stuff online, TED Talks and animated videos and stuff that talk about um, these these skills um, and practices. I'm trying to think who else. I mean, Seth Godin is, you know, in in his own way, uh, really speaks to yeah all these. You could even couch it under marketing. Um, you know, in some in some ways, uh, marketing skills being, you know 
uh, skills that you bring to your consumers. Thank you for that. And again, I will, I'll link to all those resources in the, in the show notes. So if you're driving your tractor right now, please don't stop and try to write that down. You can come back and check it out later. <laughs> wow. Just with, with that, Polly and Prentice, we're going to get a quick word from a sponsor and then we're going to do our lightning round. We'll be right back. This lightning round and the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Store It Cold's CoolBot. The CoolBot has changed the way farmers think about cooling facilities for their vegetables by making it possible to cool a walk-in cooler with a window air conditioning unit with massive savings on the front end and an ongoing electricity and maintenance costs. And now they've taken another step forward and created a turnkey refrigeration solution, an energy efficient walk-in cooler designed for easy assembly by you in hours, not days. I know from experience how much time and energy can go into building a not-so-great homemade walk-in cooler or looking for a used one that's still in good condition. Save yourself the time, save yourself the money, and make your produce stand out in the marketplace when it lasts on store shelves, in restaurant walk-ins, and in your customers' refrigerator drawers because you sold it to them cold. If you're purchasing a CoolBot, use the code FTF at checkout to double your CoolBot warranty at no charge. Or mention Farmer to Farmer and receive an exclusive discount on your walk-in cooler. Storeitcold.com. Polly, what's your favorite tool on the farm? Oh, collinear hoe. And then we're going to ask the same question of Prentice. So, Prentice, what's your favorite tool on the farm? Uh, budding basket weeder. I mean, two tools that I think a lot of people are really familiar with. And I love both of them because they do exactly what they're designed to do. And they do it really well. And they're both a lot of fun to use. Prentice, I'm going to ask you, what's Polly's farming superpower? Interpersonal skills. That makes sense based on what we talked about right before with a lightning round break. Polly, what would you say is Prentice's farming superpower? Organization. So that's really interesting to me because a lot of times that organization piece falls on the person who's who's doing the office stuff or you know kind of has that those interpersonal skills. Um, can you talk a little bit more about how that works on your farm? Prentice is really organized in, uh, you know, setting up the systems ahead of time that so that the farm can run smoothly. So the planting calendars, the rotations, the seed orders, um, he, he's really organized in that in that way. Um, we I would say we both, you know, organize the pick days and the details of the emails and um, marketing. But Prentice, uh, you know, really sets things up so that they run smoothly and he's not sort of wondering, um, you know, day to day, why did I do that? Or why didn't I do that? <laughs> it's a superpower for sure. Undoubtedly. Prentice, what's your favorite crop to grow? Should be an easy one, right? I think so. Crop, do I get the most carrots? Get the most joy from growing carrots. And that's a common one. Why? Yeah, there's something nice about, you know, I think I, I appreciate that they're direct sown, that I can use my favorite budding basket weeder so effectively on them. Um, and a, a stand of big carrots and the way they come out of the ground. And I think, too, the appreciation that um, that customers have for really good carrots and our children have for good carrots. So it's all it's all built into that crop. Polly, how about you? Your favorite crop to grow? Um, I would say any of the annual and perennial herbs. I, I love uh, growing thyme and bunching thyme. I love growing cilantro, dill, parsley, basil. Those are definitely my favorite crops. And I love cooking with them. And I love picking them because you end up smelling so great all morning. 
we did a lot of herbs on my farm. That was definitely one of my favorite things too. So Prentice, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? I think about that question a lot. And I don't know that I've ever come up with a, a satisfactory answer. I think, uh, you know, part of me, I think would have said, um, be, you know, be bolder, you know, have more confidence in the farm as an enterprise and, and stretch out there. But that really wasn't what was comfortable for us. You know, we really built the farm slowly, um, built our house slowly, <laughs> built our farm slowly. Um, and, uh, so I think, um, Maybe I would say to um, that beginning farmer to think to think a little bigger, to look at maybe operations that are a little bigger than what I had sort of imagined, and uh, to to have my sights set a little bit a little bit bigger that way. And Polly, how about you? If you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? I think it would be that you know record keeping and setting up systems um, from the very beginning, uh, you know, setting yourself up. Um, for your day's work uh, in a systematic way or for your hours work, whatever it is, is just never, um, never a bad idea. Always a good idea to be systematic with how you how you move your body, um, how you choose to do things. Polly and Prentice, thank you so much for for such a great conversation today and just for being so real on the podcast. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Fun to be with you over the phone lines. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again, this is episode 120 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. And you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Village Side. That's V-I-L-L-A-G-E-S-I-D-E. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk-behind farming equipment and high-quality garden tools in North America, and by Rock Dust Local, the first company in North America specializing in local sourcing and delivery of the best rock dust and biochar for organic farming. Additional funding for transcripts is provided by North Central SARE, providing grants and education to advance innovations in sustainable agriculture. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast right in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Also, Please head on over to iTunes, leave us a review if you enjoy the show, or talk to us in the show notes, or tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. And hey, when you talk to our sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate their support of a resource that you value. You can support this show yourself by going to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. I'm working to make the best farming podcast in the world, and you can help. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmertofarmerpodcast.com and I'll do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running.